coming down the crater face from Taharangi, I felt that the snowpack was kind of really mixed and a little bit dodgy. And I remember getting a few steps down to it, down in it and thinking, this is going to go. It's definitely going to go at some point. I don't think it's that stable, but every step felt different. And then suddenly it just gave way underneath my feet. And so I was careening down the fairly steep crater face and had to self-arrest using my ice axe, which I think in hindsight, I probably could have just let myself slide because I don't think that there was any consequence, but all of the fear kind of takes over your brain and your training from Snowcraft kicks in where they tell you you have to self-arrest as fast and hard as you can so that you don't end up with a consequence. So I was very sore the next day. This is Aotearoa Adventures with your host, Abigail Hanna, the podcast for everything you need to know to travel New Zealand. I talk to photographers, van lifers, moms, students, and everyday Kiwis to hear their inspiring stories from past adventures and to share helpful tips and tricks for your travels. Whether you're visiting Aotearoa for the first time and live on the road, or you work a nine to five and have lived in New Zealand your whole life, you're guaranteed to learn something to plan your next getaway and get a new excitement to explore more of this beautiful country I call home. So grab your hiking boots, hop in the car, and turn up the volume. Kia ora, welcome to the Aotearoa Adventures podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Hazel Phillips. She's an author, a journalist, solo adventurer, but I'm sure she will tell you all about herself. Yeah, hi Abigail. I was just going to describe myself probably as a backcountry addict and a real country <laughs> addict. I love that. Yeah, yeah, but I think that sums it up. What do you do for work? Where do you live? Tell us a bit about yourself. Cool. So um, my day job is probably unrelated to any of the um, various addictions that I have the outdoors. Um, I work as a communications contractor. It was my day job, so completely unrelated. And then in my spare time, I write for Wilderness Magazine, which I love. And um, yeah, produced a book in recent years called Solo, which is all about solo tramping and adventuring. And yes, just started writing uh, another one that's kind of about Ropehu. And I live at Oakuni, just kind of on the foothills of Ropehu. So that's just a, like the national park is pretty much in my backyard. That's amazing. And speaking of unrelated day jobs, I work as an urban planner. There you go. So <laughs> I work on large infrastructure projects and sorting all the resource consents for that, which is completely unrelated to travel. Though I suppose the roads help you get to places, maybe. <laughs> Tell me a bit about your childhood, Hazel. Did you always travel? Was that always something that was a hobby? Did you do it much as a family or how did it all start? Um, never really did much as a kid. I guess um, like I grew up in 1980s Orewa, north of Auckland, back in the day before it was Auckland and it was just this little hick town that had nothing. Um, so our <laughs> holidays, Dad would take us to the beach up at Tafaranui, um, just slightly north of there, like kind of in the Rodney district. Uh-huh. So I loved the beach, loved the water. Uh, but when I was 17, I went overseas for the first time and went on student exchange in Germany. And um, that probably sparked my love of snow, actually, because I was in deepest, darkest Bavaria. And my host family was kind of horrified at the idea that I didn't know how to ski. And so for Christmas, they gave me a five-day ski course and kind of bundled me off. And That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't know enough German to kind of understand what was going on on the course. (laughs) And they all thought I was just kind of from the north of Germany because I spoke like very sort of proper high German. And they were all Bavarians, so they had no idea that I was from New Zealand until I think the final day of the course, and then they finally figured out I hadn't really kind of known what was going on. But I kind of learned how to get down a mountain in reasonable fashion, kind of snow plowing and not falling over too much, and then have always kind of skied after that. So That's amazing. That's such a great story. (laughs) You mentioned your job a little bit, but how how have you sort of managed to fit adventures around your work, I suppose, over the course of your career? 
Yeah. So in uh, when I was writing or the time period that I describe in the book solo, I was working for a company based in Australia and I was the only person um, who was employed in New Zealand. And so um, it was kind of, it was all before COVID and before remote working was an accepted thing. Yeah. My boss just didn't care where I was because it was kind of meaningless to him. So I basically went strategically homeless and started uh, just cruising around tramping and skiing and stuff like that. And, it, you know, I would still work regular hours, but it meant that at five o'clock on Friday, I could be in Arthur's Pass ready to go tramping, you know, away for the weekend rather than battling traffic from Auckland. So that was pretty cold. And then last year, I actually took five months off. So I just chucked in my day job and just kind of had an adventure bender for five months and went tramping and skiing and stuff like that. And then, yeah, decided to go back to work mostly because Royal Peihu was having a really bad snow season last year. And so it looked like I wasn't going to quite get the ski bender I wanted. And a job popped up doing something I really wanted to do. So I kind of grabbed that. And then, yeah, at some point that will end because I'm only, I'm a, I'm a contractor, so that will end and I'll, I'll go back to being a bit of a, an adventure bum for a while. So that's how I, I kind of squeeze it in. But sometimes it's also wild weekends, like, you know, you've got to just be prepared to drop everything at five o'clock on a Friday, go off on your adventures and then, you know, come home and do laundry all week and sort your gear. In fact, I just got, right now I went diving on the weekend in Lake Taupo and um, I've got a dehumidifier going and I'm trying to try all of my um, dive gear in my bedroom right now via a dehumidifier. I love that. So, <laughs> and it's Wednesday, it should have dried by now, but it's freezing cold. So. <laughs> oh no, that's so cool to hear. Your big adventure bender that you mentioned, how long ago was that? And tell us, tell me a bit more about how the book came about. Did you know that you wanted to write a book when you sort of started that or did it just happen? Oh, no, I wish that I had thought about writing a book at the beginning of it because mm. I would have taken notes and been a lot more intentional. Uh, but it was more that just friends of mine had seen the things I was posting on Facebook constantly of doing all these adventures and people kept saying to me, you've got to write a book. I'd written a couple of books before and, and I've been writing for Wilderness Magazine for ages and so then it seemed like kind of a natural extension, but I hadn't kept any notes. I hadn't done anything. So I had to go back through kind of like emails I'd written to friends, even things on Messenger. I just went through every single photo I could find in all of my archives, all that kind of stuff. So I just, this big kind of self-research project to go back and remember all these trips I'd done and to kind of piece it together. Whereas the book I'm writing at the moment is very intentional. So all the trips I'm doing, I'm doing it knowing that I want to write about it, which makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of those trips that you did for that book solo? Oh, there were so many, but um, like one that springs to mind, I did a nine-day solo across um, the Kawika and Kaimanawa ranges. Mm -hmm. So start at one end and go all the way to the other. And I wanted to do an 18-day epic. I, I don't know why. I just kind of got it into my head. I just wanted to go tramping for like a really big chunk of time. Uh, and so I roped a friend in and he had to go uh, halfway through. So I did nine days across and then he met me at a car park on the other side of the car weekers, like on the Napier side of the car weekers. Yep. And um, he had my full pack of resupply, clothes, food, everything. And he was basically going to meet me at the car park and then we were just going to keep tramping. But there was so much snow, he almost didn't get to the car park. Oh, so I almost oh. ended up stranded in the car weekers, those roads in snow. But he made it through and then we couldn't, there's no way we could get over the ranges or anything. So we just kind of ended up doing a couple of trips and stuff, changing our itinerary pretty radically. So that was a really memorable one. And another nine-day solo did through the St. Arnold, like from St. Arnold through to Hannah Springs, which is pretty well known and pretty well tracked, like up the Traverse Valley mm -hmm. uh, and over Whale Pass. And then I chose to come out some random route that sort of on the map, it looked like it was doable. And then 
in reality there kind of wasn't a track so that was a bit of an adventure but I just had a bivvy bag and ended up camping out you know I got to the end of one day and couldn't keep going lost there was no track nothing and I was sort of it was about five o'clock I think I'll just have a swim and make some dinner and just go to bed here and so I just bunked out for the night in the bush so it's pretty cool with or without a tent uh, just with a bivy bag, which is oh, kind yeah. of like halfway between a sleeping bag and a tent, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Are the um, kawekas tracked or were you bush bashing for bits of that as well? Kawekas are pretty tracked. Um, it's mostly hunter country, so and that was June. So I did meet a couple of hunters, but I had probably maybe like three or four days where I didn't see anyone for that, you know, for a chunk of time. And yeah. one day came across someone and he said to me, oh, there's going to be snow right down to, I think it was like 300 metres or something like that. And that was the first person I'd seen in a couple of days with an updated weather forecast. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. It blows my mind that like in this day and age, you can still go to places and not see people for days. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, like in the cities, in the towns, I, I just feel like we're constantly surrounded by people and it's quite a unique experience that probably only a fraction of the world have if you intentionally go into the bush, into the backcountry and don't want to see anyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really possible to do like here on Ropehu. So there are two areas they're either attached to the national park or part of the national park. I'm not sure, but two wilderness areas. So one is Hohongatahi Wilderness Area and the other one's Titato Punamu. And both of them, like people don't really know very much about them, but you can go in there. You can go into Titato Punamu and not see anyone. And it's terrain that people just don't go into. And Titato Punamu is just off the back of the Tongariro Crossing, which has, you know, probably arguably the highest number of people on a tramping track in New Zealand in any given day, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so cool to hear. So tell us a little bit more about Ruapehu, one of your favourite locations in the country. Well, I don't know why I'm fascinated with it, but I'm not the only one. I know that there's a lot of people here at Aukuni. If you ask someone, why do you live there? They kind of shrug and they say, love Ruapehu. You know, and mm. I think that's what it comes down to, which is the slogan, I think, of what either the tourism authority or maybe RAL, I'm not sure. But I just think it's got so much diversity from every little corner of it. If you do the Ropehu around the mountain track, the scenery is just constantly changing from the desert on the eastern side. And then you've got beautiful beach forests on the southern side. You've got springs. Unfortunately, there's no publicly accessible hot springs, which should probably be the number one thing that would make it really <laughs> You know, and snowy summits and 11 or 12 summit peaks, depending on which religion you belong to or school you went to. How many you believe there might be? Yeah, and just amazing rivers and swimming holes. And, and you know, when when I moved here, I sort of thought, oh, I've kind of done everything on Ruapehu. I love it. So, you know, I'm moving, but um, I've kind of done all the tracks. I've done all the huts and everything. And then you realize once you start getting off track and you start kind of poking around in little corners and, you know, above the bush line, you can go anywhere. It's just mm -hmm. so accessible. Um, and then you just start discovering more and more, which is pretty special. That's really cool. Do you have any tips for people that I suppose want to start exploring the park? If they've never been there or if they've done sort of, you know, the main hikes like the Tongariro Crossing or Tama Lakes, what's your advice to people? I think Ruapehu's got quite a few huts that are really close to road ends. Mm -hmm. And so that's ideal with families or, you know, if you've got joint problems or you can't tramp very far or you're not feeling very fit or you just kind of want to do a social night with friends or something. But there's so many that are, you know, like Mangatapopo Hut is 20 minutes from the car park and then Whakapapi you can get into in about an hour and a quarter and Blythe Hut, you know, an hour and a half max. There's all these little places that you can kind of duck into and Waihonu Hut off the desert road is about, you know, an hour to an hour. So I'd kind of start just 
hut bagging by ducking into huts from different road ends and stuff and kind of just getting to know the place and exploring. But also just having, as long as you're experienced enough to do a bit of navigation, having an inquiring mind and looking on the map and going, okay, what's that thing? And I'm going to go find out about it. You know, there's a, a wonderful Facebook group tramping in New Zealand and people will quite often put up posts and just say, you know, what's the best day hike or what's the best thing in this location or whatever. And they're trying to find out, you know, where to go by sort of asking other people or something, but actually just kind of going what I call finger tramping on the map, where you're just kind of tracing routes with your finger and figuring out, could I get from here to here? And hey, what's that thing? There's a spring listed, you know, and going away and Googling it and then finding out a bit about it and going and visiting it, you know. Yeah, I love that so much. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. I just think the potential is kind of endless beyond, I guess, all the great walks are wonderful and places like Mule Hut and welcome flat heart and everything they're all amazing and definitely tick them off but there is also a whole other world to be discovered just by being a bit inquiring and depending on whether you're an introvert or extrovert it's a bonus or a con but you might not see any people if you go off track (laughs) yeah some people might love that idea and others might hate it (laughs) yeah I'm pretty introverted, but actually I quite like um, meeting people at huts because they're often quite like-minded. Yeah, 100%. And I think some of the most hilarious I've ever had have been in backcountry huts. Yep, it reminds me of a couple of years ago when we did the Tongariro Northern Circuit, which was really special because we were doing it with my partner's parents. It was their first time in New Zealand and we hadn't done the circuit before. So it was really cool to have that sort of shared experience with them. And his parents are getting a bit older, so it was kind of like, this is probably the last like multi-day hike we're going to be doing with them. But I just love that when you're doing, I suppose, any kind of multi-day walk, there's always these people that you're kind of like following along and you see them at each hut on each day. And it's just, it's cool and you can sort of play uno around a table in the evenings it's it is definitely fun people that you meet along the way totally and actually that's one of the nicest things about the milford track because you have to book the three huts in succession if it's in the season you can't walk it the other way um you can't stay more than one but so the people that you're there with on night one you will be there with the whole time all the people on the water taxi are going to be there with you the whole time and it's actually like as a social experience it's actually really fun and I know a lot of experienced trampers sometimes they won't do great walks or they won't do the Milford because supposedly it's too many people um, and it's you know too commercial and all this sort of stuff but actually on the Milford you never see anyone because no one comes on the other direction like if you see someone going the other direction either very confused or it's one of the rangers going from hut to hut so actually it's quite a solitary experience I think doing the Milford so you can't ask people as they come in the other direction, how much further is it? How much further is it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. That's really cool. Do you have an adventure at Rupayu that sort of jumps out as extra special? I really love Blythe Hut on the southern side. Uh-huh. And it's just one of those really illogical things where I love it, but if somebody else moves along, they kind of wonder what's the big deal. It's a hut that doesn't get a lot of traffic because it's kind of off the, the Ruapehu around the mountain track. It's a little deviation. Some beautiful swimming holes that sometimes fill up and they actually get quite warm in summer. And they're sort of just maybe, maybe 10 minutes below the hut. So a lovely spot to go for a dip. And then you can walk up and get a gorgeous sunset just above the hut. And sometimes you see kind of fireball sunrises from the hut as well. So Oh, that sounds stunning. Yeah, that's pretty special. And then Rangapo Hut on the eastern side, if you want a good sunrise, that is a good place to go. Okay. Yeah, that's such a great tip. What was one of the most challenging sort of adventures that you have had? Or have you had any mishaps while you've been in the Ruapehu? 
probably, oh yeah, no, I've done, I was going to say none on Royal Paihu, but actually, yeah. So once when, not long after I had just done Snowcraft and learned how to use an ice axe and crampons, um, and I talk about this in the book as well, I, st- I did something that was maybe a little bit too much of a stretch for my ability at that current time. I went, I decided to do kind of a traverse and go up from Turo ski field, climb Tahurangi, which is the highest point um, of all the summit peaks, and then tra- like drop down into the kind of the crater lake and traverse over and drop down to Whakapapa. And so that was all fine, but coming down the crater face from Tatarangi, I felt that the snowpack was kind of really mixed and a little bit dodgy. And I remember getting a few steps down to it, down in it and thinking, this is going to go. It's definitely going to go at some point. I don't think it's that stable, but every step felt different. And then suddenly it just gave way underneath my feet. And so I was careening down the fairly steep crater face and had to self-arrest using my ice axe, which I think in hindsight, I probably could have just let myself slide because I don't think that there was any consequence, but all of the fear kind of takes over your brain and your training from Snowcraft kicks in where they tell you you have to self-arrest as fast and hard as you can so that you don't end up with a consequence. So I was very sore the next day. Oh, well, I'm so glad you're okay. I was holding my breath that whole time. <laughs> I've had a couple of other things like getting swept away in a stream crossing, uh, which I talk about in the book, which kind of gave me nightmares for quite a while. And I love rivers and I love streams, but it definitely made me a lot more cautious around water. Yeah, another one where my foot got stuck in a stream crossing, that was on the Kaweka trip. And so freezing cold water and my foot kind of slipped in between some rocks and got stuck and it took me ages to get myself out. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to set off my PLB. This is stupid, you know, yeah. just there by myself. So I had to chuck my pack off and kind of dig sand out to get a rock out and then finally managed to kind of get my foot out and it's pretty cold. Wow. Have you ever used your PLB? I, I haven't touched wood. That's good. It's <laughs> definitely a good thing to have you. So, but also being prepared that if something happens to you, being able to take care of yourself because if you can't get rescued, I'm just sit tight. Yeah. Yep. Was it quite a steep learning curve? Um, I suppose getting those skills to be alone in the outdoors. Um, you talked about snow school a little bit, but was it quite a lot of training or did you build up to it or how did you sort of get the skills that you needed to be outdoors and adventuring solo? I had just done quite a lot of trips with other people and I think I got to the point where I was um, often organizing the trip from start to finish and doing the navigation and sorting out the food and kind of managing safety and everything. And I started to think, okay, maybe I could do this by myself. And it's often hard to find people to go on trips with you or as you start to want to do things that are a little bit more hardcore to find people who want to also go and have a suffer fest in the mountains. And so I started thinking about, yeah, rolling solo and then just started really small with that stuff. So I think the first solo thing I did was technically was Abel Tasman on the Great Walk and ended up meeting lots of people. And so it wasn't solo at all because there were so many people. in Blythe Hut because I knew it. So I thought, okay, I'll go to a hut that I know and yeah it just started small and then last year I did the three passes track which mm-hmm. goes up the Waimakariri River and comes out on the west coast and you go over Browning Pass which is really steep and someone had said to me definitely don't do it solo and this was a few years ago and it really kind of put the fear into me and I have wanted to do that track for years and years and could never find anyone to go with and could never line up the transport because you need a shuttle from the other side and finally it all fell into place but I would have to go solo and so I thought okay I'm going to give it a go I'm going to go until it doesn't make sense anymore and then if it's dodgy I'm going to turn around and come back out so I was completely prepared to pull the plug and retrace the steps and then in the end it was completely fine 
Yeah, I think that's such an important sort of mentality to have that it's okay if you need to quit (laughs) because your safety should be first. And I guess as humans, like we always push ourselves to the extent of our limits, but we need to know where our limits are and not go beyond that where it endangers our life. I feel like that's that's a really important mentality to have when you're when you're in the outdoors and when you're doing things either solo or in a group where you might be responsible for other people's health and well-being as well. That's really cool to hear. There's a lot around what they call heuristic traps as well, which is kind of the psychology, you know, how people think when they're in the wilderness. Generally, other people so things like just a group mentality you know sometimes if the group is moving at a certain pace you will just move at a certain pace and you won't stop and say hey i need a break i need to put a plaster on a blister you're going too fast i'm terrified whatever you'll just kind of keep going and often you'll find every member of the group is terrified and no one wants to keep going but no one will say anything because nobody wants to be that person who speaks up and there's actually some research that in an avalanche sense having a female in a group can lower avalanche risk simply because decision making becomes much more conservative and then there's things like expert halos. So if you've got a friend, for example, if you've got a friend that you dive with who's a dive master and super experienced, and then you go ski mountaineering with that person and they're actually less experienced than you, you kind of transfer their experience in your head and you see them as a person who's much more experienced at ski mountaineering, even though actually they're not. They're just a really experienced diver. There's a bunch of different things like that that you've got to be quite careful of. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I've never looked into sort of the psychology behind these things, but that's really, really fascinating. Thanks for sharing. Don't worry. On a similar note, have you had any sort of observations or experiences on your adventures as a woman in the outdoors? Uh, the book's probably full of these, if anyone, anybody's <laughs> in the experience of a woman in the outdoors, uh, read my book. Yeah, there's been quite a few, and I think sometimes it can lead you, you know, if you're treated as kind of less competent, less capable, less able. You start to see yourself in that way as well. Mm. And as an example, one of the things uh, that happened to me recently, uh, I was looking for something in the backcountry and um, a contact of mine for coordinates for this particular thing. And uh, and he gave me a set of coordinates. And then when I plugged them in, they were coming out completely in the wrong place. But I just assumed that it was me that I couldn't understand coordinates. So I just went, okay, well, I just have no idea and it's just me, I'm stupid. And uh, then I went and found the thing and then sent him a message and said, hey, thanks for the coordinates, that was really cool. Much appreciated, you know. He said, ha, 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 I didn't want you to be able to find it too easily, you know, so he'd intentionally given me the wrong coordinate. But I hadn't stopped to think that they might be wrong, like the coordinates might be wrong or that he might be putting it wrong. I just thought, oh, I'm just too dumb to understand (laughs) To understand the coordinates, you know. We're always our own worst critic, aren't we? Yeah, completely. And in the book, I talk a lot about the self-doubt, you know, and uh, often how people will panic at you if you're a woman in, in the wilderness by yourself. You know, one time I got to a, a hut at night, walked there in the dark, intentionally in the dark. I knew I was going to be walking in my head torch, but it was just something I wanted to do. And got to the hut and the people in the hut kind of had a bit of a, a panic and, you know, where's the rest of your group and it's dark and everything. And I said, no, it's just me. And I, I know, it, I know it's dark. It's what I intended. It's not a stuff up. And then they sort of got past that. And then a guy entered the hut about 10 minutes later by himself. No panic. There was absolutely no panic for him. And the poor guy, maybe he was in a state, but no. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy when you put those two things right next to each other and you definitely see the biases that people hold, eh? Yeah. 
I've spoken to a couple of mums on the podcast and I just love hearing their stories just because it's challenging the status quo, right? And Alice mentioned on her podcast she was hiking while she was pregnant and got to this hut and a little while later there were some other kids in the hut, not her own, but they were all there and then this guy sort of rocks up and he's like puffing and he gets there and he's like, oh, there's kids here and oh, are you pregnant? <laughs> and he's just like, well, that that was easy, wasn't it? Like... <laughs> and totally yes. changed his perspective but um, I've probably totally butchered the story anyway yeah it's really interesting the perception that people have of women in the outdoors whether you're with kids whether you're without kids yeah that's that's super interesting yeah but there's so many amazing women out there I think to look at who have done incredible things in the outdoors people like uh, Lydia Brady who was the first woman to climb Everest without supplementary oxygen mm. and she's a, just a kick I'm an amazing person and Penny Webster who's doing I think the hunt is it the hundred maybe it's 52 peaks or something maybe it's 100 peaks sorry Penny I forget what Penny's <laughs> doing but she's doing she does incredible hardcore climbing and like Joe Morgan, who I think was doing all the peaks over 3,000 meters, which is maybe what I'm forgetting that Penny's doing as well. And Joe Morgan's into motorbiking and stuff. She's totally, she's my spirit animal. She's amazing. Yeah. And just, I know heaps of ladies who are just doing kick-ass things who were just super inspirational for me. It's also incredible that we live in a day and an age where we can do those things. Sure, there might be biases, but there's a lot less barriers now than there were 50 or 100 years ago, which is just such a cool time to be alive. Yeah, completely. So in the book, I talk a bit about um, Frida Dufour, who was the first woman to climb Mount Cook. Mm -hmm. um, she was Australian come over to New Zealand and do stints at Mount Cook and do all kinds of climbing. And, you know, she faced so much discrimination and just yeah. sort of this is how we expect a woman to be this certain kind of mold of the woman who would sit at the hermitage and, you know, go to dinner in a beautiful frock and everything. And, and Frida had to climb up wearing a skirt wow. to appease people, you know. But it was, she was kind of damned if she did and damned if she didn't because if it was a certain length, like too long, it was problematic for climbing because it got in the way. And if it was too short, then it was scandalous. So, you know, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> kind of blazed a trail, I think. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Do you have any bucket list trips or locations that you haven't explored yet that you want to explore in New Zealand? Probably, I don't know if I would have bucket list things. I have a really weird list of tramping things that are just very specific to me, of just like little things for whatever reason I want to go and do and take off. But my ski touring list is kind of getting longer and longer, and there's a lot of stuff in the South Island I would love to ski tour. Um, so just recently I, was, I saw a thing about um, aspiring guides, I think, about ski touring in the Cass Valley, uh, and there's a couple of huts that look amazing. And so but that's on that's on the list now. And, you know, ski touring any of the glaciers in New Zealand is always a thing for me. I've done and that was pretty amazing uh, and I'd like to do some of the west coast glaciers as well oh that sounds phenomenal yeah tell me a bit more about ski touring have you done quite a bit of it um I started maybe like five or six years ago I think yeah. and it's, it has been kind of a solo thing sometimes for me just going from the top of the chairlift on Ropehu in fact the first time I ever put skins on my skis and tried ski touring was a solo thing just kind of went for a skin to see what it was all like and figure it out and fall over a lot and stuff like that. But I've got a group of guys in my ski club who are keen ski tourers and so we've done a lot of trips together and that's been pretty amazing. But I think it just opens up so much terrain and it's another way of challenging yourself. And yeah, increasingly I get more interested in skiing in the backcountry and kind of visiting peaks in a culturally respectful way and, you know, just seeing different things in the backcountry, different modes of travel on snow than I do by, you know, sitting on a chairlift and kind of going round and round. But that's nice too yeah 
No, that's so cool. Well, we're almost at the end of our time, but um, do you have any sort of parting advice for listeners? Anything you'd like, really? I just think getting out and doing stuff. If you, you know, if you feel like life is boring, go make a list of 10 cool things that spark your imagination and then go and tick them off. I think it's great to have a kind of a goal list or a tick sheet of things that you want to do, go and do and see and conquer. Yeah, doing physically challenging things, I think, is really rewarding, especially for women. It just builds confidence hugely. And if you're a woman, I think, get into the middle of it and figure out how to do the thing. Don't let other people do it for you, because I think there's a huge amount of power in um, acquiring knowledge and skills. And don't be afraid to get on a course and learn something new, even if you're terrified. Yeah, I love that so much. Do the scary thing. I think it's also important to note that like it, it doesn't have to be a big goal that you set yourself. It can be it can be something simple. Um must have been two years ago now. Um in twenty twenty one I set a goal at the start of the year to go up my local Mona a hundred times. And I think I started in about February or March and by April I'd been up fourteen times and then I did nothing until August. Um, and that was the year that the whole country went into lockdown and then Auckland had that extended lockdown. Um, so between August and November, I was like up and down, up and down, sometimes two or three times a day if I needed to get in my walks. But I did it and it was it was simple. It was getting outdoors. It was moving. And it sort of gave me that extra confidence when I was going on hikes the following summer. It's like, I can do this. I can do hard things. I can be motivated. I can set goals and I can smash them. So yeah, that's that's really good advice. Yeah, totally. I think confidence, it's not like you have confidence, therefore you go and do the thing. Mm. Doing the thing confidence. Mm. So just go and do the thing. Yeah. Even if it's tiny. Even if it's tiny. Even if it's baby steps. Well, thank you so much, Hazel, for your time. Um, Where can people find you on socials? Where can they connect with you if they want to see more of your upcoming adventures? Um, Where can they find your books? Give us all the links. So the book is called Solo, Backcountry Adventuring in Aotearoa, New Zealand. You can generally find that at bookstores, um, otherwise there's some online retailers. You can find me on Instagram at Hazel Philly, P-H-I-L-L-I, so truncated version of my last name. And then I also have a Substack newsletter called The Wild Snowflake, um, which is kind of sporadic, but I put that out occasionally just with things I'm doing, nice, nice pictures of the wilderness and so on. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing to chat to you. I'm feeling really inspired listening to your stories. And I think I'm actually going to have to pick your brain after we hang up because (laughs) I've got a couple of questions about Rupehu and the Milford track. (laughs) So thanks so much, Hazel. Thanks, Hazel. How good was that episode with Hazel? I love talking about all things adventure, solo travel, with a sprinkling of feminism in there too. The South Island often gets a lot of attention, but I love that we got to chat about Ruapehu and some of the incredible walks, hearts, and fun that can be had in the North Island too. Check out all the links in the description to discover more of Hazel's stories and her books, and keep an eye out for some of her writings in the next Wilderness magazine. Thank you so much for tuning in and coming along for the ride. If you love the show and enjoyed listening, please take the time to leave a review on Apple or Spotify. I would also love to connect with you, so send me a DM on Instagram or leave me a voice message, and I can't wait to see you next time. Until then, keep adventuring.